Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is The Morning Shift. A new report commissioned by the city and the Illinois Gaming Board shows that investors in the Chicago casino would have a hard time turning a profit because of high taxes and fees. The study found that casino operators would barely earn a few pennies on the dollar at any of the five locations proposed by Mayor Lori Lightfoot. WBEZ City Hall reporter Claudia Morrell explains what's in the survey and how it all came about. When the state legislature uh, passed an expansion of the uh, state gambling law over the summer, uh, back in June, they added a provision that gave the city the ability to study whether or not the city could profit from a casino, you know, how much money it would bring in and, you know, how likely it would take to get it financed. And so they hired a consultant firm from Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, Union Gaming, And they used these potential sites that uh, the mayor had pitched, uh, the five sites, three on the south side, one on the west side. Sorry, five five potential sites. Four on the south side and one on the west side. And um, they determined that none of those sites would really net much profit or bring much revenue in to the point where it would be economically feasible. Tell us more about these five sites. What was the city looking for? When the mayor announced the locations, uh, she said that, you know, let's not get hung up on these sites. They're really just uh, large tracts of land that could be developed tomorrow if you wanted to. Uh, One is the old U.S. Steel site. Uh, It's on the lakefront all the way. It's almost by the Indiana border. Another site is all the way in uh, Roosevelt and Costner. It's in North Lawndale. Uh, It's right by the Cinespace Studio and the Lagunitas Brewery. And then there's two that are near south side, so like the Bronzeville area, Michael Reese. That area had the uh, most potential for revenue because it is the closest downtown. But uh, the local alderman, Alderman uh, Sophia King, hates the idea of a casino there. She already has plans to redevelop that land. And uh, as you may remember, uh, the city had bought uh, the Michael Reese Hospital for the Olympics bid uh, back when uh, Daly was trying to get the 2016 Olympics, and uh, we never got it. And the city's actually still paying debt service on that land. So it's uh, one of the few city-owned parcels. I want to get into a couple of the main findings of the report. And one is that a Chicago casino could bring in massive amounts of revenue, but that doesn't translate to profits for the casino operator. Explain that breakdown. So the consultant ultimately said that the tax structure is too onerous, is the the word that they use. And that's because uh, in addition to the application fee, which is significant, uh, and then the license fee, which is also at least 100000 plus a fee that you pay on every gaming terminal, plus the state tax, plus the city's proportion of the tax. It ended up being a 72% tax rate. And so it just wouldn't really be feasible for a private operator to put their own money in or to go and, and borrow uh, in the markets to then pay off all the construction costs to build the casino when you'd only be making about profits, 3%, I think they said, the most profitable site would have been Michael Reese, and that would have only been about a 3% profit. But at the same time, a Chicago location is said to have the potential to become the highest grossing casino in Illinois. So does that sort of put some fire uh, behind the political will there to to try to make this happen? I think so. Um, Mayor Lightfoot said, you know, this report essentially backed up what she'd been saying all along, that uh, a casino, if done right, could bring in a ton of money for the city and state. 
But the way that it's set up now, she said that, you know, we're just taking up too much money on the front end. And so they need to go back and determine where they can lessen the burden so that it ends up being profitable for a private operator to oversee the casino. Uh, The other option is for a city-run casino, which is what a Mayor Rahm Emanuel had a first pitch back in 2015. The city would own the casino, um, but it would be operated by a private company. Mayor Lightfoot and Governor Pritzker spoke to reporters yesterday about this study. Let's take a listen. First and foremost, we've got to get this tax structure right, um, because otherwise we're talking about something that can't be done. But I'm very confident that we'll get there. I think everybody has the right mindset about it, and, and all of us want uh, the city and the state, uh, as well as the jobs that will come along with that casino. Uh, we all want it to succeed. What are we hearing from other lawmakers? Well, uh, Senate President John Cullerton said uh, he couldn't comment because he hadn't read the study yet, and Madigan's spokesperson said that the speaker was recusing himself from any uh, gaming legislation, so not much comment on that end. Alderman Anthony Beal of Pullman put out a statement. Uh, he has been very supportive of a Chicago casino from, from the get-go because he really wants one located on the south side because he sees it as you know something that could spur investment down there. And he does not like the idea of a downtown casino and said, you know, we knew all along that, you know, the best way to make the most money out of this is to have it run by the city of Chicago. But uh, the mayor said that while she understands that, you know, there are parts of the city that are desperate for this kind of investment, you know, at the end of the day, the whole point of the casino is to make money. It's to bring in revenue for the city because uh, the pension hole and all of the bills that uh, we're going to have to be paying in the next couple years. And, and how much is the state planning on revenue from a Chicago casino? At the high end, it would be close to $600 million total. And so then it would be split between the, the city and the state. And now, that'd be a year. Now, speaking year. speaking of a downtown uh, location, the report concluded, and I'll quote them here, that only a centrally located casino that is in close proximity to high quality hotels and other notable tourist attractions would be feasible. So, of course, that means <laughs> a downtown location, but then that presents a bit of a political hurdle for a downtown casino because you do have interests in the south and west side who say, hey, we need this kind of economic investment here. So what does that mean moving forward for the mayor? It'll be interesting because she also put out a a city survey uh, where she wanted to get residents' thoughts on this whole idea. And uh, it was interesting, out of 10,000 respondents it was pretty much split. I think 30% wanted uh, a downtown casino, and then 30 said uh, outside, and then the rest said, you know, they didn't care. And so it shows that, you know, not everyone wants uh, a centrally located casino. And, you know, there was the issue of traffic and congestion. And, you know, there are very limited options downtown, um, unless uh, you put it on Navy Pier or, um, I guess, by McCormick Place. So and then you'd have to deal with the the local alderman because, you know, this is just the state aspect of getting the licensing. And then once you go through the city planning process, you have to factor in aldermanic prerogative and, you know, local control of, you know, what gets built where. Well, then there's also the issue of the tax structure, which is something that has to go through Springfield. So any sense of the political will there? Well, the gaming board has 90 days to um, come up with their response to the study. And, you know, depending on the political will in Springfield, it could come up in the veto session this fall, which will be around the same time that the city will be um, dealing with its budget. But uh, either way, we likely wouldn't be seeing any revenue or any 
proposed sites for a while. And I mean, they said once it was built, it wouldn't be operational and, and making money until 2024. That's WBEZ City Hall reporter Claudia Morrell. Claudia, thanks. Thank you. About 1 in 10 Americans over the age of 60 are abused, neglected, or financially exploited. Here in Illinois, thousands of seniors reported such abuse within the past year. One case of elder abuse would be too many, but 20,000 cases annually is unacceptable. We need to tackle this head on. That's Governor J.B. Pritzker speaking at the Illinois State Fair on Monday, announcing the creation of a statewide elder abuse task force. Joining me now on the phone to talk more about this new group is Paula Basta, director of the Illinois Department on Aging. Along with us in studio is Michelle Weinberg, supervisory attorney at Legal Aid Chicago. Welcome to you both. Thank you. So you're both members of this new task force. Paula, you said there are four areas of focus for the task force. Um, Run us through, through those four. So the first is to investigate the effectiveness of current elder protective services and laws, the things we're doing now statewide. The second is to examine barriers to prosecution and strategies to increase public awareness of elder abuse and how to report it. The third is to study training resources and look at best practices in other states. What are other states doing? And then the fourth is to identify a long-range plan to combat elder abuse on an ongoing basis. And Paula, why did this, um, you know, rise to the attention of, of creating a task force? I'm curious what uh, you said. Um, one of the our, our state lawmakers um, is is pushing this forward. Why did it become an issue for her? Yes, there were two state lawmakers who really took the lead on it. Um, the state senator Rochelle Crow and then um, Illinois State Representative Katie Stewart, both of which have had experience in their um, other day jobs. I guess you could say that that they were both. Um, experiencing this and hearing about these things more and more in each and every way of which they were doing their work. Uh, State Senator Crow is, was a prosecutor where she was in her district and also Katie Stewart. So I think was a, uh, they basically saw that there was a real gap here. And so they basically also came to us and said, what do we know and how can we help? Um, the Illinois Department on Aging, we respond and have responded to more, as the governor said earlier, more than 20 thousand reports of abuse of uh, adults 60 years of age or older, and then persons 18 to 59 with a disability uh, also can call us for the Adult Protective Services if they feel they're being abused. And that's, again, 20,000 is kind of a staggering number, and this is, we think, is probably even underreported. So we want to make sure that there is going to be an awareness around what is this elder abuse, what is it to be a person, if you are 18 to 59 years old with a disability, feeling like you are abused, where can you get help? Um, and abuse takes, and I'm sure Michelle can speak to this as well, abuse takes many, many forms. It's financial exploitation, emotional abuse, passive neglect, physical abuse, willful deprivation, uh, confinement. Um, and many times what we find, too, are some of these abuses take place in tandem. So we want to make sure that we tackle this um, all together. M- Michelle, you were nodding uh, when Paula was talking about this being underreported. And, and I'm curious about what you think is driving that. Well, I think primarily it's the isolation of the victims of this kind of abuse. It's not always the most, you know, 
the, the physical, dramatic physical abuse, but the isolation, the social isolation, the kind of controlling behavior of the abuser and the family ties. And very often the victim is very dependent on the abuser, so they're reluctant to report. I'm, I'm sure whatever calls and reports are coming in, there's a lot of people out there who are probably not making reports. And do you often find that people are self are, are calling in on behalf of, of, of themselves, or, or are there fa- other family members or neighbors who are identifying the abuse? I think it's all of those things. And I think part of what we want to look at is how to, because very often, again, the, the victim maybe is unable to even speak for themselves. So they're not always picking up the phone and calling, but to help everyone else in the community to see the signs and how to how to make it easier for them to report and get help. Michelle, at Legal Aid Chicago, you focus on financial abuse. Talk about what that looks like. It's kind of constantly evolving. Um, When I started doing this kind of work more than 20 years ago, the big issue was predatory lending. Seniors were, you know, marketed all kinds of financial products and mortgages and loans on a lower payment, but it was really much more costly. And that also enabled major home repair fraud um, because the easy money. We used to say if you, could, if you had enough breath to fog a mirror, you could get a mortgage. Well, that, of course, all changed after the crash. Um, so there's not these easy loans anymore, but we still have, of course, home repair fraud. But the major scams since the crash have, that I've been dealing with are things like deed theft and basically tricking someone into signing a deed or... You know, sometimes there's other other ways of getting on title to property, and more and more of that we see is is family and caregiver thefts, either theft of money in the bank or or stealing people's houses. Paula, for people who are listening, uh, who have elders either in their family or or in their neighborhood, people who they're you know keeping an eye on, are there signs of elder abuse we should look out for? Well, I believe that anyone and any everyone and anyone should be aware of. Um, of people that they care about and see the signs that they, if they see someone that's maybe uneasy or if they're nervous or if there's some physical differences in their appearance. I mean, I think it it goes from, and as Michelle so aptly talked about, um, I think there's all kinds of signs. Um, Some are going to be outwardly, uh, you're able to see them outwardly, and then there's going to be other things that are going to be more internalized. And one of the things Michelle also talked about was isolation. And I think that here in Illinois, we're trying as Department on Aging to try and tackle through our area agencies on aging social isolation throughout the state with our seniors because the population, as we all know, is growing very fast. So um, in Illinois now, we have 2.7 million people who are 60 years of age or older. That's almost 20% of the population. And I think that what we want to make sure to to do is, again, heighten the awareness of people as either neighbor or friend or relative of saying, if you see something, say something. And basically, if you see someone, as you said, you know, as you've been asking, what are the signs, what are the symptoms? Uneasiness, um, nervousness, people that are saying, you know, I just I, I don't like when this person comes to see me or any kind of things that if you feel like there's a bell ringing, you should probably look into it further and let us help you. We have numbers, phone numbers you can call. We're here to help you and we're here to make sure that we can tackle this with you. You're not alone. If the suspected abuser is trying to keep you away from that person, that's a huge red flag. Mm-hmm. Um, if things like utility shutoffs for someone who's always paid their bills on time, 
Th- things mm-hmm. like that would be would be red flags. I think it's a lot tougher the kind of caregiver and family abuse. It's harder to address because it's so atomized. It's not like uh, when I was suing the Mark Diamonds and the John Sullivans, the home repair frauds. I mean, they victimized many many people, and they had a pattern where that we could trace. Sometimes it's very hard to to trace these individual uh, situations. Paula, I wonder how much of your work is going to also be about helping institutions that interact with elders better identify some of the signs. I I have aging parents or aging mom now, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I've been in doctor's appointments with her where a nurse will ask, do you feel safe at home? And a person may not feel comfortable answering that question in front of a family member for the reasons Michelle described, but is is it also about helping institutions better identify and communicate with elders to identify if there's an issue? Absolutely, Jen. It's really a great example. I think, you know, that's why part of this task force is looking at training and looking at other um, other models of what other states are doing. We already do a lot of training with other institutions. We also have coordinated care case management units that are out there looking as they go into people's homes for, for homemaker services, if they have or see anything that they know how to report abuse. Um, so I think that it takes many, many, many pairs of eyes on people and that basically we want to make sure that there is such an awareness that they know if in fact they see something that there's help out there that they can call us and let us get involved to uh, look at the situation. I think, yeah, there's other institutions. Obviously, the medical institutions, our our, uh, case coordinator uh, units, our CCUs, our AAAs, our area agencies on aging, all the people that are working um, on a daily basis with our seniors from uh, being in a senior center and coming for lunch every day to uh, maybe just going to your local diner for breakfast in the morning um, and getting your hair done, hairdressers. I mean, you know, you you name it, our seniors are everywhere because the population is, is growing at such a great, fast rate. But it's it's something that all of us should have a heightened awareness about. And as Michelle also said, the hardest ones are the, the caregivers or the family members who are um, abusing uh, those who, who are their loved ones. And it's a very, very difficult situation. But again, we want to make sure people know we can help. There is help out there. Please, please let us know if you need us. And Paula, if someone is looking for resources or a number to call because they're concerned about someone, where should they go? The 24-hour Adult Protective Services hotline is 866 866- Eight zero zero one four zero nine. Again, that's eight six six eight zero zero one four. And then just in general, if people are wondering about senior services in general throughout the state of Illinois, if they have any questions or things or uh, comments they'd like to make or let us know if they need help or assistance in their home, they can also call our senior helpline. And that number is 1-800-252-252. Eight nine six six. That's one eight hundred two five two eight nine six six. And Michelle, really quickly, for people who may be concerned that an elder in their life is in financial trouble and they want to start that conversation and don't know how to quite get into the conversation with them because there can be a lot of shame around being defrauded. Any advice about you know those first few questions to ask? Well, I would say try to avoid putting any blame on the person. Because a lot of times you discover your family member has been ripped off for sometimes tens of thousands of dollars. And, you know, anger is a, is a 
immediate response, but you don't want to take it out on your loved one because people feel so ashamed and so embarrassed. It's hard enough, like you said, for them to open up about it. So that would be the probably my first advice. That's Michelle Weinberg, Supervisory Attorney at Legal Aid Chicago. Also with us on the phone was Paula Basta, Director of the Illinois Department on Aging. The task force will report its findings and recommendations to Governor Pritzker by January 1st. Michelle, Paula, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. And that's it for today's Morning Shift. Stay on top of the most important conversations about Chicago land by subscribing to this podcast and give us a rating. It really helps other people find us. And if you want a hands-free way to listen every day, just tell your smart speaker to play the Morning Shift podcast. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon.